3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You know, it was funny, this morning I had some people ask me, you know, what took so long for Judson to get down into the baptistry? And you know, the thing that, that happened there that you guys don't, you guys miss out on a lot because you don't see what's going on behind the scenes. So Judson, he's coming down into the water. Well, he, it took him a while. He gets this look on his face, and I've seen that look at my house before. You know, like you know your child, and the looks that they have, you know what's going through their mind. I looked at him, and he had this smile come across his face, and he starts laughing, which makes me even more nervous about what's going to happen. And I looked at Judson, and I said, whatever you're thinking, don't. Yeah. So I asked him later at the house, I said, what was it you were about to do? He said, I was thinking about a wave. And he means like tidal wave, not like wave, hi, dad, like wave, like I'm about to do a cannonball. And so I was just really thankful because you've seen videos online about them doing those to preachers. And I have waiters on. If those fill up, I'm going to have a hard time getting out. So um, very thankful that didn't happen. But uh, if you'll look in your Bibles, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And how many of you have ever heard the saying, uh, don't bring a knife to a gunfight? You ever heard that before? I was thinking about that this week uh, out in Arizona. Did anybody watch the news? They had this terrorist uh, that the police, the Arizona police pull up, and this, this Muslim man begins to throw rocks at the police officer. And the police officer's like, sir, you know, back away from the vehicle. And the guy, uh, he ends up backing up a little ways, and then he ends up pulling a knife out on the police officer. And the police officer just keeps repeating, sir, you need to put the you need to put the knife down and back away. And he keeps telling him that over and over again. The police officer, he pulls his gun. He says, sir, I will shoot you, all right? And so he ends up shooting the guy two times because he kept coming at him with a knife. The reason, he's totally powerless in the situation, right? Like there's absolutely no way you're going to win that battle when you have a knife and you're coming against somebody with a gun. And as I was kind of thinking about that, I'm convinced that believers are just as powerful, just as powerless when we neglect to pray. Um, do you ever find yourself watching the news and you get irritated with what's going on in our country? I, I mean, I just like, every time you turn on the news, you're just, you're, your faith in humanity is lowered considerably. You, you see what's happening with people. You see that our country is shifting away from God. We're no longer a Christian country. Uh, I, I mean, that's very clear if you look at what's going on. And it's easier to complain than it is to come before God in prayer. It's easier when you see that the culture shifting away from God to begin to post about it instead of praying about it. It's easier to, when you see what's going on with believers, uh, the fact that there's so much immaturity even among church members, it's easier for you to be discouraged than to have the desire to plead before God for those people in prayer. Would you agree with that statement? I, I, th I was thinking about it even this week, that how many times I get discouraged about things that I see, and I, I think about even my own prayer life and how much it's not what it should be. Do you guys ever feel that your prayer life is kind of, it's not as far as up on the priority list as it probably should be? Uh, although many of us, if I was to ask you, have you ever had God answer one of your prayers? I'm sure that we could see hands that would shoot up all across the room. But if I was to ask you the same question as how is your prayer life, I think many of us would say it's not exactly where it should be. Well, I, uh, I read an article not too long ago by Corey Tinboom. She was asked a question. She said, they asked her, how important is prayer in your own personal life? I want you to listen to what she said. Good words. She said, when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. The scouts for joy. I'm convinced that when we look at Scripture, the Scripture teaches us that we're in a spiritual battle. We have far more going on in our world, spiritually speaking, than even what we recognize. The Bible says in Ephesians 6.12, this is Paul writing, and he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness in this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the fact of the matter is, is that we are in a spiritual war that's going on that a lot of times we can't see, we don't understand what's going on, and at times it looks like Satan's winning. But when we come to this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 
we find that Paul had a problem that was going on inside the church at Thessalonica. He had a situation that had happened. He had established this church there, and they were going through a severe time of testing and trials. And the problem was is that the persecution had gotten so bad that Paul was worried that underneath the pressure that they would give up on their faith in Christ. Paul was not able to go and visit these believers. And even though this persecution was coming from people, it would have been easy for him to think that the battle was against people. But Paul recognized that it was something bigger that was going on. I want to kind of show you the context because when you read in this chapter, you'll see that Paul is pointing over and over again to the fact there's a spiritual battle that's going on that sometimes we don't recognize. Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, He wanted to go to visit the believers, but Satan hindered us. Paul also said he was worried. When you look in chapter 3, look down at verse 5. He says that he worried that the tempter would tempt them and that his labor would be in vain. Paul wanted to be able to, his prayer was for these group of people that when you look down in chapter 3, look down at verse 8, his prayer request for these believers was that they would stand fast in the Lord. That word stand fast is the idea of that they would refuse to give up ground spiritually speaking, that they would refuse to retreat from what Satan was trying to do. That was Paul's prayer request. And here's my point. What I want to point out to us this evening is this, is that Paul, when he was facing very difficult circumstances with a group of people he loved dearly, Paul turned to what? He turned to prayer. Paul turned to spiritual weapons to fight what might have looked like a physical battle that was in reality a spiritual battle. And folks, I would just submit to you that so many times the things that we're facing in our world today, they portray themselves as being physical battles, don't they? They appear like it's problems with people, but really in actuality, it is a battle that's been going on for a long time. It's a battle between light and dark. It's a battle that stretched back all the way to the beginning of the universe. It was part of the invisible struggle for the hearts of men and women that's gone back for thousands of years, and the battle's still going on today. I love what the words of Barclay, what he said about this passage. I want you to hear what he says. He said, Paul carried these people on his heart to the mercy seat of God. He said, when we can serve people no other way, there's one thing that we can still do. We can pray for people. What do you think would happen if we begin to use spiritual weapons to fight spiritual battles? What if we begin to be a people that would begin to pray for our culture, pray for our society, to pray for our churches, to pray for marriages, to pray for for healing, uh, to pray for all of these things. The fact of the matter is, is that we don't pray like we should. And as we look in this passage, I want us to see the heart of the Apostle Paul for this group of people. Paul was like a spiritual father to them. And there's three things specifically that Paul prays for them that I want us to see here that are very good prayer requests for all of us. Look at the very first thing. Paul prayed for a faith without flaws. Look at how Paul begins this prayer. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11. I want to point out a few things to you. Verses 10 and 11, it says this, Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And he says in verse 11, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Paul had been accused of starting this initial church at Thessalonica for selfish reasons. They had accused Paul that he had done it for himself so that he would get puffed up, that he didn't really care about him. He only wanted a position. And so Paul begins to say, even here in verse 10, that his thoughts, night and day, he was doing what? He was praying for them. Hey, usually if you're going to pray night and day for somebody, 
You, there's some kind of affection there for the people, right? You, you have some kind of relationship with them. But he's saying that he was constantly thinking of them and he was bringing them before God in prayer. That's a great thought. His desire was that this people, these, this church that was going through testing, that they would be able to last through it. Have you ever had somebody pray for you when you're in a difficult time? How encouraging is that for you? And Paul says that night and day you're being brought into my thoughts. Now, what I want to point out to you is this. When you look at the passage, normally when you pray to God, you pray in first person, right? You would say, you know, my prayer is this, and you're, and you're praying directly to him. Now, notice that when you read this prayer, it's in the third person. Now, the reason why that's interesting is that Paul, not only is he directing his prayer to God, but it's as if Paul wants these group of people to know what he's praying for them. That's interesting, isn't it? That he's prayed in the third person. That, and if you'll notice, three different times he uses the word might and may. The reason why that's a big deal is that as Paul is praying this prayer for these believers in Thessalonica, he wants them to understand this is Paul's desire for them. This is a prayer for them to know what's on his heart, not just for God to protect them, but he also wants them to know that as the founding, uh, as the person that came and established this church, Paul's desire was that they would accomplish certain things. He wants them to understand that his greatest desire was to see them fruitful. His greatest desire was to see them grow further in their faith, to see their faith established. What a great prayer he's going to have for them. Paul's going to pray three separate areas. And I want, you, I want to kind of state it off at the beginning so that you can follow my, my train of thought. But Paul prays for three areas. He prays for their faith. He prays for their love. And he prays for their hope. Now, these are going to be some great things that he prays, but he wants them to understand that his heart is that God would grow them further and further in their spiritual life so that they would become more like Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I submit to you there's probably no greater prayer than to pray that us as a group and a body of believers would become more like Jesus that we would model that. His desire was that that would happen at Thessalonica because they were in the midst of persecution. And the one thing that would stand out with them was what? If you would respond to persecution and act like Jesus Christ, what would happen? Their faith would not only grow, but more people would be drawn to it by the change that's happened in their life. That's a pretty incredible thought. Now, notice what he prays in this. First thing that we see is his desire of his prayer was this, a perfected faith. Verse 10, he says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face. His desire was that he would be able to go to them. I told you that Satan had hindered him so that he couldn't get there. But notice, why did Paul want to go to see them face to face? He says this, that I might perfect that which is lacking in what? In your faith. Now, the frequency of Paul's prayer is that he's praying night and day. Now, don't take this literally. He's not saying that all Paul does is he sits around all day, uh, you know, on the floor, 24-7 praying for him. I think what he means by that is that Paul lived his life in the spirit of prayer. That he lived his life connected to God the Father, praying for things that were constantly being brought up to his mind to pray about. That, that's a great picture for living the Christian life. That, that you would live each moment of every day, not necessarily always praying, but in the spirit of prayer. And he's saying, night and day we prayed for you. These believers were on his heart. He had the desire that their faith would be made perfect. Now, I want you to notice this. What does Paul mean by the fact that uh, their faith needed to be perfected, that, that he could, notice he says, might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. What does he mean by that? You might circle that word perfect. It's a really good word. It means this. It means to complete. It means to fit together. It can sometimes have the idea of a net that has been torn that needs to be mended. Now, how many, we have anybody that fishes in here? Um, I am not a fisherman because to be a fisherman, you have to catch something. Um, so <laughs> that's the truth. All right. So um, 
The idea here is that in their day, in, in Paul's day, he's using some terminology that it would be able to draw a picture to their mind. People, a lot of times, are visual learners, right? And what he's saying is that, hey, uh, imagine a net that you're casting out, and he said, your faith, he, the way I want to perfect it is that you have some holes in the net of your faith that needs to be perfected. Now, that's a beautiful picture. It's the idea, what use is a net that has a hole in it? You're going to have fish that's going to get out. What's, what's the use in throwing that thing out there if the fish are just going to get away? And what Paul's saying is this, I desire that I could come to you so that I could be able to mend the net of your faith, to fill in the gaps from where you are to where you should be. How many of you recognize that you've been saved long enough that you have some weaknesses, you have some gaps in your faith, right? You have some areas that still are under construction. The Bible talks about the fact that he who's begun a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? You are a person that's in work, that's in process. And Paul says, I want to come to you because I have the desire to close up those gaps that are in your faith. Now here's the question that you have to ask yourself. What does Paul mean when he says, I want to, I want to perfect that which is lacking in your faith? Did Paul have the desire to say, come on, you guys need to believe harder? Do you think that's what Paul meant? I don't think so. If it was that, he could have just wrote them an inspiring letter and said, let's just leave it at that. But Paul didn't do that. Notice that in the passage... The conclusion of what he's trying to bring to them is that it was necessary for Paul to come to where they were at in order to complete their faith, in order that they might perfect that which was lacking. Why did Paul have to go? I think that Paul was trying to point out to them that Paul had the desire to come to them to teach them the word of God to teach them about who God was, to teach them about the resources that they had at their disposal, to teach them more about how, how they could grow in their faith by knowing who God was and all the resources that they had at their disposal, and that by knowing God better, they would in turn, they would begin to love God more. The more that they began to love God, the more they would become obedient to God, and the more they became obedient to him, what would happen? Their faith would grow. You see, why was it that Paul would be praying the prayer that their faith would be perfected? Now look up here. This is where I really want us to, to kind of understand the point of what, what Paul was trying to, he wanted to build up their confidence in who God was, in his word, the characteristics, the traits of God, because the more you know him, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you obey him. The more you obey him, the more your faith grows. And Paul, as he was going to come and perfect their faith, why would he pray a prayer like that? <clears throat> He's praying, and you remember I told you that it was a spiritual battle that was going on for this group of people? They were under severe trial and testing of their faith. And Paul's praying it because there's nothing that Satan would love more than to hinder you in the process of your sanctification. The process of sanctification is this. From the moment that you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you are now involved in a process of sanctification where he's taking you and he's molding you into the image of Jesus Christ in every single area of your life, right? And what Satan wants to do is he wants to come in and he wants to distract you. He wants to deter you. Satan wants to uh, stall you out in your sanctification. There's nothing that he would love more. And so Paul's desire was that he would come and enlarge their understanding of who God was, that they would begin to understand the scriptures better, and not only that, but they would begin to understand the resources that they had at their disposal in Jesus Christ. Folks, you recognize that everything that Christ wants to do in your life, not only does he call you to it, he provides you with the resources necessary to do it. Amen? That's a big deal. There was a spiritual battle. Paul's prayer was that God would use him to mature the faith of these believers 
That's why you could see it over and over again in Scripture. How do you mature your faith? It's always tied to Scripture. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.2, he says, As newborn uh, babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? That they may grow thereby. The Bible says in Romans, faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing by the word of God. You want to grow in your faith, it's always connected to the word of God and attached with having a personal relationship with him. How do you pray for people? Well, Paul is saying is that he was praying for the perfection of their, uh, of their faith. He wanted to see them grow. Isn't that a great prayer? To begin to pray, Lord, would you mend the, the net of my faith in the areas where I'm lacking, in the areas where I have weakness, Lord, would you grow me there? You imagine what would happen in our church if we began to pray that way? Lord, I got weaknesses. Lord, I have flaws. Lord, I need you. I need that perfecting work of where you're going to grow me and you're going to mend the net of my faith in the areas it needs to be mended. It's a good prayer. Let me uh, open up to you a little bit this week. This week, I've had a, it was a stressful week for me. Okay, there was a lot of things going on, and, and, and you know, we've had some, one of my boys, uh, have you ever noticed that when you're stressed out, and when things are like, you're really busy, you got a lot of things going on, everything could go wrong all at the same time? Anybody ever noticed? I don't know why that happens, but it does, and the deal was, is like, even this week, um, I said some things to my son, and I was like, man, I can't believe that I said that to him. I was pretty harsh. I was overly harsh with him, and I recognized, I even had to end up going to him, and I told him, I said, you know what, I was really wrong. You know, it's sometimes it's, it's kind of, you're like, well, they kind of deserve that one just a little bit. Like, let me tell you what happened. So last night, my parents were in town to see my son Judson get uh, baptized, right? And so because my parents are here, they take Addison's bedroom, and we tell the kids, all right, uh, you guys, when you need to go to the bathroom, you come to my bathroom, Okay. You come into mine and you use it. Well, I didn't think about when they would want to use it, okay? So last night, uh, my wife gets up. She's going to the bathroom, you know. And then what happens is, is on her way back to bed, Branson has in his mind that he comes into the bedroom and doesn't say a word. He just stands there and stares, okay? So my wife, you can imagine what's happening. The lights are out. She's walking back into the bedroom, and there's just a little boy standing there in the dark just staring at you. And what do you think my wife did? She screamed murder. I mean, just murder. And you know what I did? I jumped out of bed thinking I had a fight on my hands. I mean, like, I'm so fired up. My, 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 my heart's beating. And I'm like, what am I about to face? And man, I'm not sitting there thinking, well, the Lord's just trying to mend that net of my faith. You know what I'm thinking? I, I want to murder this kid. How could he, like, scare the mess out of us this bad? But you know, as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about, Lord, my patience and my anger and all those things, those are the areas of my faith that I need to grow in. And you know what our tendency to think is, is that, you know, well, I'm that way or we can begin to excuse it. But the fact of the matter is, is that, man, those are the areas where we need prayer the most. That we would begin to be a people that says, Lord, you know, there's no area that goes left unchecked. You can have your way wherever the holes are at in the net of my faith. Lord, would you mend it? That was Paul's prayer for the church at Thessalonica. Lord, mend the net of my faith. But I want you to notice the direction of his prayer. Look at what he says in verse 11. Now, the temptation would be to skip past this passage, and you would miss something if you did it. Look at verse 11. I want to point out a few. You guys recognize when you come to church, like pastor says, you should learn some things, right? Now, notice verse 11. You do not want to miss this. It's easy to miss it. Look at what he says. Now, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. This was the prayer of Paul, and he begins to pray. And notice the direction of his prayer. He prays specifically both to God he refers to him as what? As father. And then he refers to Jesus Christ as what? As Lord. That's the idea of sovereign. 
Now, we normally think of it in opposite ways, right? We think of Jesus as being more personal, but, but that's not how Paul displayed it here. He refers to God the Father. He refers to God as Father. That's a personal term. And he refers to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's his sovereignty. Now, notice, I think what he's trying to, to point out is that they're on level ground. There's unity there. Now, continue on with my thought. You got to follow it. It's interesting that he uses this word, and you need to circle it in your Bible because it's important. He uses the word himself, singular. Notice he uses the word direct. That's also singular. Here's the question. He's referring to God the Father, and he's also referring to Lord Jesus Christ. And when you refer to two people, it's normally what? Plural. But why does he use the word himself? He's, reply, he's referring to the fact that there's total unity between God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. And he's saying, hey, God the Father and Jesus Christ, they're equal, co-equal, co-eternal. They're both God. And, and, and that's an incredible thing. Now, as you keep following, he says, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, they have the ability to act on your behalf. Notice his prayer is directed to both of them. Now, what was Paul asking for? Look at the passage. Look at what he says. He said, may, the, may they do what? May they direct our way unto you. That word direct has the idea to make straight, to make right. It's the idea of laying out a path in a direct line, that it would be smoothed out, that there would be no obstacles. What's his prayer for, folks? What's he praying for? Look at the context. His prayer is that God would smooth out the path for him to be able to come to Thessalonica to build their faith. And he's directing his prayer at God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is he asking for a smooth path? Well, you remember what I told you? Paul had the desire to return to Thessalonica, but what happened? Look down at chapter two, verse 18. He says this, we would have come to you even I, Paul, once again and again, once and again, but what? Satan hindered us. So as Paul begins this prayer, notice he doesn't, he doesn't say anything to Satan when he prays this prayer. Who does he address? Come on, follow me with your train of thought. Paul does not address Satan in his prayer. Who does he address? Hey, folks, you have absolutely no power over Satan. God the Father and, and Jesus Christ do, but you don't. And Paul, as he's thinking of these people and as he's praying and asking God to act on his behalf, he's doing what? He's saying, I need God the Father and I need Jesus Christ the Lord to act on my behalf to smooth out the obstacles and to knock them out of the way. Pretty good prayer. Now follow along with me. Look again because he uses an important word that you cannot skip. Notice he calls him God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he say our? It's his Father. He's emphasizing the personal relationship that he has with God, the ability to come before God the Father and Jesus Christ in prayer and to ask them to remove obstacles, folks. That's incredible. The fact is, is that you and I have the ability to go before God because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We can now, when he, Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two, right? And now you and I have the ability to do what? Go into the very throne room of God and we can go in and we can ask him to answer our prayer requests. Why? Because God is now our Father and Jesus Christ is now our Lord. That's incredible. Look at what else the, the Bible says in Hebrews 4. 14 and 16, it says this, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our profession for we've not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Look at what he says in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, in Jesus Christ, you have the ability to pray and ask for God to take out obstacles, to make your path straight. 
I believe that Paul is emphasizing the fact that you and I as believers have the ability to go directly into the throne room of God and to ask him for help. Is that not the most underutilized tool in the Christian life? The ability to ask that God would take out the obstacles when Satan's putting them up. You know, it's such a great prayer, but let me ask you this. The best question you could ask about this verse is, well, if prayer is the most underutilized thing, and Paul turned to prayer to ask that God would work in their faith, did God answer his prayer? Don't you think that's a logical question to ask? If Paul begins to pray about it because he can't make his way there, and he's asking for God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to remove obstacles, did God ever answer his prayer? That's a good question, right? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Look at what this says. Great verse. It says this, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because why? Because your faith groweth, what? Exceedingly, abundantly, even more than we ever thought it could. So the, the question is this, is that, did God answer his prayer? Amen. Folks, uh, even when you're far away and it feels like Satan's putting up obstacles, you have the ability to petition God the Father because he's your father. You have the ability to come before Jesus Christ, who's Lord, who's sovereign, who can work out obstacles, and he can, he can change anything. He can move things around and work them out in a way that you never even thought possible. But the fact of the matter is, is that we don't see that happen a lot of times. Simply why? Because we don't pray. What an incredible thought. You know, I uh, read an article about Tony Evans. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before. He's a very popular uh, preacher down in Texas. He, he does a phenomenal job. And Tony Evans, he's, he said in his book, he said he doesn't like going on elevators. He hates them. He said they're just scary to him. You know, they can get stuck. And on one particular day, he was in a high-rise building, and he was in this elevator. And the very thing that he was afraid of happened. It got stuck. And he said he, he remembers that everybody in the elevator, uh, one particular person, began to bang on the doors trying to get the attention of somebody else on the outside. He said another person just began to scream as loud as they could. They were freaking out of their mind, he said. They didn't know what was going to happen. And he said Tony Evans, at this point, he was very calm, very cool, and collected. He walked his way to the very front of the elevator. He opened up a box. And he pulled out a, a phone that would be able to connect him with somebody that was on the outside that could come to the rescue and could help. You know, he very eloquently pointed out the fact that that's what prayer is like. It's like connecting to somebody that's outside your situation, somebody that can actually come into your situation and fix where you're at. He has the ability to act, but so often it's neglected in the Christian's life. Folks, how much more could we see God do in our lives, in our country, in our churches, in our own Christian life, in our marriage, if we would use what God has put at our disposal? We have a spiritual battle. We have to use spiritual weapons. So the first thing he prayed for was for their faith, that it would be without flaws. Notice the second thing that he prays for. He prays for a love without limits. Let's read verse 12, and I want you to notice that the two are connected. Your faith and your love are connected. Look at what he says in verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love for one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Notice it uses the word and. Uh, what, what I think Paul means by this is that uh, his desire was that their faith would grow spiritually but listen, folks, it's more than just growing in your sanctification and your relationship with God. Did you know that God's desire and part of your spiritual growth is your growth towards other people? Did you recognize that in the church, your relationship with other believers is vitally important to your relationship with God? 
Notice that what his prayer is like. You could uh, start the beginning of this verse, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. Paul recognized that just like in your Christian walk, the only way your faith grows is by what? The Lord causing it. Hey, you, did you know that you're, even your salvation coming to faith in Christ, even faith was a what? It was a gift from God. Your sanctification is also what? It's a gift from God. He said, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in your love. Paul recognized that there is nothing that, that doesn't, first of all, come from a sovereign God that's working it into your life. But notice, Paul's prayer was that the Lord Jesus would cause their love to increase and abound. This word, increase and abound, has the idea of being filled up and overflowing. Paul's prayer was that their love would be what? Filled up and overflowing. This word for love that he uses is the word agape. You guys are familiar with that. That means it's the highest form of love. It's the kind of love that's sacrificial, that puts other people's needs before their own. And I want you to notice, this is a prayer that Paul often, he often prayed. If you look back in chapter one, verse three, Paul already mentioned the fact that these believers at Thessalonica had already had a labor of love towards other believers, but it needed to increase. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul prayed this. He said, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. There's this desire that Paul says that part of your Christian life is that your love should be increasing, not decreasing. That your love for believers should be, what, sacrificial. It should be kind, putting their needs before your own. It's a natural outworking of what God's doing in your life. Now, I want to point out a couple of things is this. Love is evidence of a growing faith. If your love is not growing, your faith's not growing. Look at what he says. He first of all prays for his love towards who? Towards other believers. Notice in verse 12, it says this. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in your love toward one another. Paul's talking about his relationship between believers. Did you know that Jesus prayed the very same thing in John 13? Jesus made this statement. I want to read the verse. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you would love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. By what? By your love for one another. We are to be known as a people that are distinguished and we have a distinguishing mark about, of loving other believers. It's interesting. Why would Paul pray for their love to each other? The love between believers? Hey, let me ask you a question. You guys be real honest because you guys know the answer to this. Is love between believers ever a little hairy? Is love between believers in church, is that ever a problem? Hey, listen, folks, I'm convinced that what Satan would love to do more than anything else is to get believers to argue and fight with each other as opposed to loving each other sacrificially. When believers fight and they don't love each other like Christ called them to, it's really hard to have a good testimony in the world around you. Satan wants to destroy the love that we have for each other. He wants believers to fight because the world knows us by what? Our love for each other. Let me ask you a question. Do you have certain people that it's tough for you to be around them? Do you have certain people that every time you see them, you try to avoid them? Hey, listen, that's the type of, part of real thing. And some of you got people coming up and like you got pictures in your head, don't you? Like, I, I don't want to see that person. Listen, Satan loves nothing more. He wants you to be a people that has the kind of stretched out love, a love that puts others' needs before your own. Hey, listen, by the way, it's the kind of love that, did you notice what he said in John 13? It's the kind of love, the same love that he had towards you. That's where it becomes even more difficult. He says, as, he says that you would love one another as I have loved you. Hey, folks, uh, did Jesus Christ love you when you weren't at your best? And if he loved you when you weren't at your best, how much more so should you love other people even when they're not at their best? 
That's the kind of sacrificial love Christ calls us to. Amen? Now, not only in their love towards one another, but notice what else, he, what else he says. Look at verse 12. And he says, and toward who? All men. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that's great. He says it's men. My problem's with the lady. Hey, by the way, you, don't be a jerk. You know what he said. He said, everybody. That's what he means. You see, the thing is, is that the world wants to see how your love has impacted you. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, I want to read this verse to you, very good verse. He says this, you've heard it said that thou shalt love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to, to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. What's, what's he, Jesus saying in the passage? Love even your enemies. Love the ones that hate you. Love even those, the ones that want to use you. Now, the thing that I find interesting when Paul tells these believers to love, to have love towards all men, I find it interesting this church was going through a time of persecution. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, hey, you want to know how these, believe, these unbelievers will recognize you? By how you respond to persecution. Hey, folks, look up this way. I want to bring something home to you just a little bit. Why is it that Paul is telling them to love even their persecutors? Lean in just a little bit. Remember back in Acts? Remember when Stephen, they drug him outside the city? His face had been shining like that of an angel. And even as they were throwing the stones at him, what was Stephen doing? He was praying for him. You remember in that part of the passage where it says they were taking their robes and they were throwing it down at the feet of one person? Who was it? Saul. Could it be that Paul is telling them from personal experience that when you love people that hate you, it has a, a profound impact on even them? Wow. Wow. It's almost as if Paul opens up his personal testimony and says, hey, when you love people like, that don't like you, the ones that hate you, the ones that want to persecute you, it has a tremendous impact on everybody because they see what? They see Jesus Christ. And listen, folks, there's nothing more that Satan would want to hinder in your life than, than, than people seeing Jesus Christ shine through you. Why does Paul pray for it? Because it's Satan's desire is that you would hate people. This world is filled with hatred. And the one thing that will stand out to people is what? The love of Christ that shines through believers. The truth that he calls us to embrace is this. He's called you to love both who? Both believers and unbelievers. But I want you to see the last part of the passage. Notice this with me. He says this. Even as we do toward who? Towards you. What's Paul pointing at? Look up here, guys. I want to. Uh, this is great. What Paul says is that even like what we did with you, what does he mean by that? He's saying, hey, we loved you when you were in the category of what? Believers. We've loved you when you were in the category of what? Toward all men. It doesn't matter. What, we, what you saw in us is an example. We came and brought the gospel to you, even despite the persecution. We still showed our love to you. And even now, since you've come to faith in Christ, we're still doing what? We're still showing our love towards you because we're praying for you, that you would grow in your faith, that you would grow in your love. Pretty powerful thing because Paul wasn't asking them to do something they hadn't seen before. He's saying, I want you to follow the example that we left for you at Thessalonica when you saw how we interacted with you there. Powerful thing that Paul says. Now let me ask you a question. Here's the question. If Paul prayed that their love for other, towards other believers would grow, and if he prayed for that their love towards unbelievers would grow, the question is this. Was his prayer request answered? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Look at what it says. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith grows exceedingly. And what does he say? And the charity, that's love, of every one of you all toward each other. What does it do? It abounds. It's growing. It's, going, it's full and it's overflowing. 
What does that mean, folks? Was Paul prayer answered? He was hundreds of miles away, and yet he prayed and God answered. Paul recognized that what? To fight spiritual battles, you have to use what? Spiritual weapons. Let's look at the last thing. We got to finish up. We're out of time. The last one is this. He also prayed for a hope without deception. Verse 13, look at what he says. It uses these first words. Notice what it says. It says, to the end. What does he mean by that? He's saying, I'm praying for your faith that it would be without flaws. Your love, it would be without limits. Why? Why do you pray that, Paul? To this end. He's saying, this is the conclusion of the matter. This is why I'm praying for it. Why is it? He says, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, when? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's praying that God would establish their hearts. What does that mean? That word establish means to make strong, stable, unmovable. Well, why is he praying for a heart that's stable and unmovable and strong? Why is he praying for it? Because the heart is the seat of emotion. It's the where you make the decisions. It's where your motives are at. It's where your thoughts are at. Your desires are at. And Paul is praying that what? They would have a strong heart that would be unmovable in living their life for Jesus Christ. Why? Because when you look at the verse, so that they would be unblameable in what? In holiness before God. He said, my desire is that one day, that I'll be able to present you guys as unblameable. That means without accusation against you. Before who? Not before men. He doesn't say before men. Paul's concerned about the future date when he would stand before Christ at the Bema seat, that whether you know your works were done in the flesh or whether they were done for God. And what he's saying is that I want to be able to present you as, as, un, as, as blameless before God, holy God's desire for your spiritual walk is this, is that you would live a holy life that's clean before God in purity, that's increasing in your sanctification and him molding you into the image of Christ. That's God's goal for you, unblameable in holiness. Peter says it in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, but as he which has called you is holy, what? So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. God's desire for you is that you would be increasing in your holiness and in your sanctification. But I want you to notice, it's not only did he want them to be holy, but he also wanted them to live with anticipation. And folks, this is where it gets very practical for us today. I'm convinced that one of the reasons we don't live like we ought to live is why? We don't live like Christ is coming back. Look at what he says. He says, why should we pursue holiness? Well, we should do it before God, even our Father, at the coming of Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul wanted their life to be pure in the eyes of God, not before men. The fact is, is that, folks, the coming of Jesus Christ is the hope for all believers, right? When we talk about hope, it's this future faith that one day Jesus Christ is going to come back again. The fact is, is that when he comes back again, that should we, our belief in that should cause us to do what? Live a holy life. 1 John 3, 3 says this, and every man that has this hope in him does what? He purifies himself. Hey folks, one day we're going to stand before Jesus Christ as believers at the Bema seat. It's the idea of a raised up platform. Now, the Bible teaches there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. It's not a, a whether you've, you're lost or not. This is whether you're, you'll have reward or not. And folks, what Paul had the desire for was that they would live their lives not being deceived into living for today, but that they would live their life in view and in mindset that one day Jesus Christ would come back. Hey folks, do you believe he's going to come back again? If you believe that, the, one of the hopes and the desires that you should have in your heart is what? That I would leave, live pure, a clean, holy life before God. You see, you know what Satan wants you to do? He doesn't want you to think about the fact that one day Jesus Christ is coming back. He wants you to love this world. He wants you to love the things of this world and to live for today. 
Hey, folks, why did Paul pray for this? He had the desire to see them grow in their faith and in their sanctification because he recognized what? If Satan gets you to live for today and you have no thought towards tomorrow, you won't live a holy and clean lifestyle before God. What a good prayer. Hey, folks, let me just kind of close with this thought. What I really think about this passage that's incredible is this. I really think the church at Thessalonica is the product of Paul's prayer life. You look at how they grew in their faith. They grew in their love. They lived with the mindset that Christ would return. Hey, folks, do you, do you think prayer accomplishes anything? And folks, how much more so would you think that our country could be different? Our city could be different. Our, our church could be different. Our marriages could be different. Our children could be different if we learned to fight spiritual battles using what? Spiritual weapons. Stop complaining, stop arguing, stop getting upset and discouraged about things and learn to use the spiritual weapons that are at our disposal. It's the most underutilized weapon that God's given the believer. And the fact is, is that the majority of us, and even myself, I would have to say that I don't pray like I ought to. Let it be our prayer that that would change. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. How many of you would say that, Ryan, you know what? I, I'm convinced that I don't pray like I ought to. I have the desire to see God work in situations in my life and in our country and in our church and in our, in our families, but I don't pray like I ought to. Would you just raise your hand right there wherever you're at? Many of you. Would you just begin to even pray silently that where you're at, that it would impact your heart to pray for a faith that's, that's perfected, a, a faith that would grow, to pray for a, a love that would be overflowing towards believers and unbelievers alike, that you would begin to live your life with the anticipation that one day Jesus Christ is going to return. Would you begin to even think about ways that you could establish prayer as a priority for you in your own walk with Christ? Let me just close in a word of prayer for all of us here. Lord, I just come before you this evening and you know our hearts. Lord, our desire is that we would be a people of prayer. Lord, we believe that you can act and you can move. You can take out obstacles. You can do anything that you desire. And Lord, it's our, our prayer that we would be a church of prayer that we would be a group of people that believe that you can act and you can move and that you can work despite the difficulties that we face. Lord, help us to be a people that make it a priority to set aside time to pray, that you would do a great work in our day for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our ushers are in the back. Fellas, come if you would. It's time for our evening offering. As they're coming, let me just tell you a little bit. This week, the Lord has been gracious to us. Uh, the problem that was in the courts this